the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tonight, we're going to talk about um, one of our favorite presidents, uh, the very first president, George Washington. And uh, we thought we've heard all about George Washington that we're going to hear about, but there's another angle to it, and it has to do with George Washington being the deal-maker-in-chief. And uh, to join us tonight from Washington, D.C., we have Cy Ansari, who is the author of the book, Dealmaker-in-Chief, and talking about George Washington. Uh, Cy, thank you for joining us tonight. Sure. You're welcome. Now, tell us a, a little bit about uh, your, your background, especially as a historian, because I find the older I get, the more I'm interested in history. Uh, it seems like it was wasted on me when I was in high school, but uh, as far as the the depth of what these people were doing in their times, I can see it more vividly. So tell us your interest in history. Well, I, I, I was in my 20s and uh, in law practice in Washington. I happened to start a, a bank and got a charter from the controller currency for a bank, and the controller placed a location of the bank as stone's throw from George Washington's Mount Vernon. And, oh, beautiful uh, place. Running, running the bank, I got an opportunity to meet all of the people in the trade area and uh, spent a good bit of time at uh, Mount Vernon. I met all the people and the president of Mount Vernon and, and um, became very interested in George Washington's background and his, his activities. Of course, you know, there are probably tens of thousands of books about Washington as a commander of the Continental Army, but his presidency has not received as much attention. It happened that some years after that that episode with the bank, which I sold later, um, I ended up running and managing the world's first sovereign wealth fund and became uh, a constant uh, constant traveler abroad internationally. And what struck me really very strongly was was how the American economy was doing so well uh, generation after generation, year after year, while so many countries uh, trying and trying out various kinds of economic and political systems were not doing so well. And... Uh, it was it was obvious to me that something was going right in the U.S. and why was it not going exactly the same in other countries? And that's when I started doing a great deal of research about the origin of the American economy and the entrepreneurial system, and it was amazing. It all pointed when the research pointed right back to one man, George Washington. He was the one who did all the things necessary in order to put the pieces in place for an entrepreneurial economy. How how novel was that back uh, at 
at that time in the late 1700s? Uh, the, the, the thing about, the, the most important thing about that period is that it was a colonial period, which meant that all of the orders for the running of, of the various colonies in America were coming out of London. And uh, uh, the uh, orders under George King George III were very, very strict. Uh, Americans could only trade with one country, England. Americans could only uh, sell their commodities and tobacco and various products that they had, could only sell those in England and send them to England aboard English flag carriers. Um, Americans were not permitted to engage in manufacturing activities unless the mother country needed that particular kind of uh, manufacturing processes. And there were the restrictions of every variety on the, on the colonists. And, um, uh, you know, one of, the worst, one of the worst aspects of it was that, was that um, uh, in the event you uh, defaulted on a loan or you went into business and were not able to pay your debts on time, you ended up in debtor's prison, which really was a, you know, monstrous kind of, uh, mm -hmm. of a place. They would put a prisoner uh, in, a, in, a, in a basement facility, uh, attach his arms to a chain in the ceiling, and the, the feet were tied to the, attached to some some uh, nails on the ground, and so there was no, it was Stygian darkness, there was no sanitation, and no, no water nor food was given to the prisoner. In other words, a debtor's prisoner fared far worse than a, a criminal of, of uh, you know, a hardened criminal because those prisons were not so bad. So, so it would be better actually to be a robber, rob the money, pay your creditors, and then go to prison. <laughs> Absolutely. And so this was a major stumbling block to people going into business. Who would want to take this kind of a risk? So there were, there were a lot of these, these kinds of things that were coming out of the colonial process, the colonial state of being. You, and, and England also issued... Uh, in charters for corporations, uh, which insulated people from liability, but only issued those charters very sparingly and only to members of the aristocracy. And so Americans really were not able to secure that kind of a protection against the debtor's prison and other, other, other kinds of obstacles. So hmm. when well, George Washington became president... Yes. Uh, he had had a lot of experience in operating in the colonial environment and, and the frustrations that, that the colonists experienced. And so he took steps to uh, reverse all of that. And that's, that's really what, what uh, my book ex ex puts in detail, uh, explains in detail exactly how he did that. And there was an awful lot of opposition in, in the country and within, even within his own administration to his plans. And so that's, 
that's what the book explains about how how he did all of that and 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 what the result was even in his own time. Well, it sounds quite enlightened for the time. Uh, yes, because as you're talking about uh, the colonial uh, standards at at the time, I'm I'm thinking that in England things were still very strictly class structured with the aristocracy, and if if you were not an aristocrat or born in a higher class, you're likely to stay there uh, for your life. And, and not have much upward mobility. Uh, was there much entrepreneurial spirit or economy going on in England other than granting charters to uh, ar- aristocrats in England? Well, we're, I understand the, the colonial situation was something that was probably and, and expectedly exploited by the motherland. And you're, quite, you're quite right, absolutely right. There were uh, the... the aristocracy was deeply rooted in in England at the time, and really to some extent still is. At at the time, uh, there were approximately 290 uh, senior aristocrats in in the UK and uh, in England, and uh, the the population of England was about 9 million people, and this roughly less than 300 senior aristocrats really garnered all of the top posts in the country, and they they had the, the most wealth, and they, uh, the whole country really was run by them, and they received all the privileges, and uh, there were some minor uh, nobility as well, and, and uh, they, they, their numbers were much greater, but uh, most of the people, the majority of the people, were commoners and peasants, and they had... Uh, really, they lived in poverty and had uh, very little uh, right, with very few rights, and very little to say in, in the running of the country. Um, George Washington felt that, uh, in order to create a an entrepreneurial society, he had to uh, create uh, equality in 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 every in every way. It had to be a level playing field. Now, most people would think, well, wait a minute, the, the U.S. Constitution provided for that, but if you read the, um, the, the, the works and the writings of, of some of the uh, founding fathers themselves, you will find that they really look down their noses at the commoners, that the, the uh, tradition of aristocracy was not just restricted to England, it, it also was carried over into the colonies. So um, uh, Washington really spent a great deal of time trying to reverse all of that. And well, this is a, is a, it's a different perspective of Washington, because when we hear the name George Washington, two things. Number one, General Washington. Number two, President Washington. Uh, we're, we're talking to authors, uh, Cy Ansari, who has written a book about George Washington, yet another George Washington book. This one entitled Dealmaker-in-Chief and really addresses uh, the issues of how we got to where we are in our free economy. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Children, the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. 
this is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips and Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips and Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440-243-2800. Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555 or select insservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs. You've earned the opportunity to enjoy a leisurely lunch. As you sail down a European river, enjoying spectacular views and the finest cuisine Portugal has to offer. Even better, you'll move on to Spain and experience the rich heritage of this country. Explore the early influences of ancient Rome. And, since this is a culinary tour, see if their food can surpass the bar that the Portuguese have set for you. And yet, your adventure has not ended, as you will travel to the land of poets, the Emerald Isle. You will see why Johnny Cash sang about Ireland's 40 Shades of Green. More than a tour, an experience worthy of any bucket list. Check out your itinerary on Facebook, Culinary Tour with Jerry Quinn, or go to ChristianExpedition.com. A five-star experience at a three-star price. More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful, protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our next segment of The Advocate. Tonight we're talking about General and President George Washington and how he had a side uh, that we're not too familiar with, uh, and that sending deal-maker-in-chief and playing a role in shaping our economy to where it is today and where it has been for the last 241 years. So with us tonight we're having the author of the book called Deal-maker-in-chief, George Washington. We have Mr. 
Sai Ansari. Sai, thank you again for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, it is a, an interesting side of George Washington. Um, in some of the readings I did of George Washington, I recall that he always kept Mount Vernon in his mind and in his heart, and and also from a business standpoint, making sure it still operated while he was usually up north with the uh, Continental Army and the uh, American Revolution. Uh, this this background had, uh, I guess, uh, George Washington and his agricultural businesses operating within the colonial framework. Uh, did that play a role in him deciding to be part of a, a new order of, of business? Yes, indeed it did. Uh, uh, you know, uh, George Washington inherited Mount Vernon from his uh, half-brother, Lawrence, uh, at the time of Lawrence's death, uh, the, it was really just uh, almost a shack that he that uh, George inherited, uh, and it was uh, dilapidated and in need of great repair, and uh, and the ground was not uh, uh, producing very much by way of products of any kind. By the time George Washington finished with it, uh, he, that that little shack was now a a beautiful mansion with 8,000 acres of ground, and he was in he was in a lot of businesses. Uh, he had created a lot of businesses at Mount Vernon. It was a diversified operation. He grew tobacco initially, and tobacco was a highly intensive labor-intensive product, and had to be shipped to England. And, and you know the perishable leaves uh, on the way. Um, on the way uh, to, to England would usually end up resulting in, in not much by way of a revenue. So he switched to wheat and started producing 10,000 bushels of corn and, and then turned the wheat into a flour, flour by creating a flour mill of his own and tripping it under his own name, his own brand. And then he went into spinning and weaving and creating garments and then he built a tannery and and made shoes and and then he manufactured barrels and he created uh, was able to produce fertilizer. He made wagons and rope and harnesses and saddles and bricks. He went into commercial fishing and built a distillery. So essentially, you know, he became a serial entrepreneur. And um, when people when when historians uh, try to determine what his wealth was at the time of his death, they really uh, don't take into account all of these businesses that he created uh, over a period of time. Hmm. But, you know, the the book is called Dealmaker-in-Chief, and I wanted to mention that um, he really was a remarkable dealmaker. And... uh, the best example of there are quite a number of examples of that, but the best example that I can think of is the creation of the city of Washington. Uh, you know, other countries have tried to create uh, a capital from scratch. Um, for example, Brazil did for creating Brasilia, and Pakistan did for creating uh, uh, Islamabad. And it cost billions of dollars to start a come to create a, a brand new city. In the case of George Washington, that is really quite a story because you know 
during the Continental Congress, during the, the, the period when the country was without a capital, uh, really functioning temporarily out of New York City, uh, every major city in the United States, in the new United States, uh, roughly 30 cities were vying to be uh, to, for the honor of being the capital of the country. And New York and Philadelphia and Boston were at the top of the list because they already had very, um, uh, you know, the basic infrastructure and they were ports and and uh, they had uh, substantial uh, populations and so on. But uh, uh, James Madison really uh, pulled some very, very clever legislative maneuvers in order to end up getting a resolution passed by Congress to put the capital of the United States on a piece of ground adjoining the Potomac River. But because he outmaneuvered everybody, Madison outmaneuvered everybody to get that done in Congress, there was an awful lot of, of heat and animosity toward the resolution. And uh, so the result was that uh, the resolution passed, but no one would vote for the allocation of any funds for building the city. And uh, so, the, so uh, the Congress uh, directed the president to build the city, gave the president 10 years to build it, and gave the president no money whatsoever, not for acquiring the land, because this was not uh, just wilderness. It was uh, it, it was green field, and there was, uh, but but it was owned by a lot of very sophisticated landowners, and um, there was no provision for how to acquire the land. There was no provision for the surveys and engineering work that was to be needed and architectural work. And in fact, not even for the construction of the government offices. But George Washington had fought a, uh, fought a revolutionary war without very much money from Congress. So he, was, he felt that it was essential that the country have a, a really very good uh, capital that would vie with the best in, in Europe. And so he hired uh, Charles, Pierre Charles Enfant to uh, uh, draw up plans for a very grand uh, capital. And uh, Jefferson was opposed to that because he wanted just a simple, he didn't want a big government, he wanted a very simple 20-block uh, uh, city uh, and with a grid style of, of, of streets and avenues. Uh, L'Enfant, on the other hand, uh, along with George Washington, wanted a major very opulent capital, capital city. And so he went around this, uh, the, the, the piece of ground that, that uh, Congress had allocated was, was uh, about 100, 100 square miles. And uh, Washington went around looking at various little hamlets within this 100 square mile area and let the all of the rumors proliferate about his his plans exactly where the center of the of the capital was going to be, and uh, he let let all that, that those those rumors percolate, and finally 
arranged to meet with the uh, with the owners of the property, the the landlords, and um, uh, they were they were they had been you know quarreling among themselves as to who was whose property was going to be in the center of of the town and and uh, whose property was going to go first and so on and he he um, chastised them for quarreling like that and then and then when they calmed down he started describing to them what the capital city was going to look like he had had a full discussion about it with l'enfant and so he was fully prepared he described an opulent city where there was going to be a, a hill the the how two houses of congress were going to be on top of a hill that he called Jenkins Hill, which today we call Capitol Hill. And then there would be a very broad avenue, the large, the most, the widest avenue that existed in the country at the wow. time. We have would, about one minute. That, that would connect uh, mm-hmm. Congress with, with the White House. And, and so he was able to get the landlords to donate half of their land at no cost. and. Um, and uh, for the roads and so on to uh, also pay no nothing but then he got their consent to to sell the property the land that he had paid nothing for to sell them and raise raise the the money. construction money and, um, so, and we and you talk about that in the book yes and the name of the book is dealmaker in chief george washington if, if you love history uh, this will give you something to read. It's it's great. I plan on doing that and getting back with Cy Annecy. Cy, thank you so much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs. You've earned the opportunity to enjoy a leisurely lunch as you sail down a European river enjoying spectacular views and the finest cuisine Portugal has to offer. Even better, you'll move on to Spain and experience the rich heritage of this country. Explore the early influences of ancient Rome. And since this is a culinary tour, see if their food can surpass the bar that the Portuguese have set for you. And yet, your adventure has not ended as you will travel to the land of poets, the Emerald Isle. You will see why Johnny Cash sang about Ireland's 40 shades of green. More than a tour, an experience worthy of any bucket list. 
Check out your itinerary on Facebook, Culinary Tour with Jerry Quinn, or go to ChristianExpedition.com. A five-star experience at a three-star price. You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful, protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800. More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In uh, the next two segments, we're going to be talking about uh, current history, uh, current and also history. Uh, We're going to be talking to the author of the book Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, and that's Julian Selizer. Uh, Julian, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm in New York City right now. Oh, very, very good. The uh, the, the center of it all. But uh, the book Fault Lines. Uh, you're a historian. Uh, you're with Princeton University, I believe. And uh, yes, I am. T- tell us about your interest in current history, which uh, 74 to present is. Well, I've been a historian for uh, many years now, and a lot of my writing in previous books uh, tends to look at the period from the 1950s through the 1980s, uh, although I've written on more recent history, including Presidents uh, Carter, Bush, and uh, Obama. So I've always been really fascinated with trying to understand events that are usually not treated by historians as history or events which historians are only starting to really look at in their own discipline and often giving a first take uh, on how these fit into broader developments and trends that we study at least in the earlier part of the 20th century. Uh, And this book came out of a class that I co-taught with uh, my fellow author, Kevin Cruz, at Princeton University, uh, where we tried to do just that, take students through the part of the uh, American history that's usually left out of the classes, and it's often left out of the history books. Well, indeed, uh, just from my own experience, it seems like what we consider current history is usually crammed into, say, the last uh, week of a course, because... uh, all the older history has dominated all the discussions in class. Um, I know, and thank you for sending me a copy of the book, uh, Fault Lines, because uh, I was so interested in it, because this is the first history book I ever picked up and uh, looked at as an actual witness to everything that you're reporting. Uh, going back to uh, 1974, I remember I was giving away my age. I was in uh, law school. 
uh, during the Watergate hearings. And uh, you marked the Watergate hearings as sort of one of the uh, benchmarks for, for the change in what was going on in the country that prior to this, I think, was dominated by post-World War II type mentalities and a, a sense of what we were calling it in the 60s, the establishment. Uh, why, why Watergate? Why is that so important? Well, we start the story uh, both with the Watergate scandal and also the actual resignation of the president uh, in the middle of his second term. And, and, and that's a real traumatic event for the country. Watergate was the culmination of tensions that had been building for over a decade, over the war on Vietnam, over divisions, over cent- uh, domestic issues, including race relations. But then this scandal takes place with a president who is very um, successful, who wins re-election in a landslide victory that many compare to 1936 when FDR won his first re-election bid. Uh, and, and the scandal opens up a whole world of Washington that many Americans suspected might be there uh, but had not seen in the same way in terms of the misuse of political power, in terms of how far politicians were willing to go to attack their opponents and, and to win re-election. And a lot of it is conducted in public. Congress holds two sets of hearings, including the famous Irving, uh, Irving uh, Committee hearings, where you saw administration officials dragged in front of the committee and often admitted a lot of what had been happening behind the scenes. So we thought that uh, his resignation was a perfect place to launch us into the new period when the country almost uh, tried to take a breath uh, after uh, everything that had happened, hoping uh, that it might be a point where there was more unity than division and some kind of resolution uh, to the anger that had built up. Uh, And that's why we start, uh, even though obviously it's not simply Watergate that starts to tear apart the fabric of the country that had existed since World War II. It's uh, it's interesting because I remember watching Watergate, and it seemed to be a continuing story. Uh, I, I was at Kent State uh, on May fourth, in nineteen seventy, finishing mm. up uh, my my four years there. And I know that mm. going through the sixties, the you use the word the establishment almost as a swear word. People weren't really happy with what the uh, the, the earlier the pre sixties establishment was about. And then with the the Watergate thing. That just seemed to set us in motion. I, I know in your book you, you talk basically on uh, a couple of things, the divisions that have been developing in this country since then. And, and you mentioned uh, the development of not only the divisions politically, economically, racially, and sexu- sexual divisions been happening. Uh, and, and you trace that all the way through, through each presidency. It's almost like looking at the reign of a king, uh, looking at under whose reign did these various things happen. Um, you also talk about uh, changes in uh, culture and technology. Yeah, so I'm not going to ask you in, in five minutes to explain all of that, but <laughs> it, it certainly laid out pretty well as far as what happened. As, as we were moving along after Watergate, what was happening next? Why, why were we being divided? Well, we argue that some of the institutions that had helped keep the country uh, somewhat together over divisions that always exist started to erode. So uh, a strong federal government, a manufacturing-based economy, which had been really essential 
uh, to the growth of middle-class jobs in the 50s or 60s, jobs that were located in places such as Detroit uh, and the automobile uh, sector, a lot of the economy starts to change. And so uh, one thing we really highlight is how that transformation to the service sector, to a high-tech economy, starts to erode the strength of the middle class. And the middle class had been really an important part of, of, of what helped uh, to, to hold us together. The politics really changed. Uh, we, we start to move to a system by the 80s where the parties are much more divided than they had been, and there were fewer centrists in either party that could find points of commonality. And the political process itself would come to favor division. The way gerrymandering worked, the way that the congressional arms of each party worked, all the incentives started to be remade in ways that favored strong partisanship. And finally, we talk a lot about technology and the media and the way that they evolve in the era that follows network television and a handful of big city papers, where the media, uh, in part because of technology, becomes much more fragmented much more contentious and, and much more unfiltered in terms of how we get our news and how we conduct our public conversations. So there's all these big changes overlaying stories like Watergate or Reagan's election that in retrospect helped produce the world in which we live today. Well, I, I noticed as you mentioned technology, uh, often we think about the late 60s and like 1969 in particular where uh, we would have Walter Cronkite talking about uh, what's going on with uh, race relations and protests going on around the country. We talk about landing men on the moon. We talk about the Vietnam War. And these things were all done in a 22-minute news half hour. And uh, that, that has changed to 24-7 uh, with, with hundreds of news sources. And uh, I think later on in the book you point out that we end up with having the allegations of news sources that are presenting fake news and basically things that aren't reliable. Uh, how, how basically, uh, briefly, we're going to be taking a break here in a short moment here, but uh, we'll be talking about how do we deal with these things and, and how is this trend continuing because uh, it's a never-ending never ending thing. In, in going over the chapters of the book and going over the, the events, it's amazing how many significant events have occurred between 1974 and 2018 that, that, that we have these. The, uh, we'll, we'll talk also when we get back about uh, what, what's your uh, prognostication for where do we go here from, from now, where we are with the government shutdown and that, that kind of thing. But uh, we're, we're pleased to have tonight Julian uh, Zelizer. He's a professor at Princeton University talking about his book, uh, fault lines. It's a history of the United States since 1974. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Satisfaction. 
More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs. You've earned the opportunity to enjoy a leisurely lunch as you sail down a European river enjoying spectacular views and the finest cuisine Portugal has to offer. Even better, you'll move on to Spain and experience the rich heritage of this country. Explore the early influences of ancient Rome. And since this is a culinary tour, see if their food can surpass the bar that the Portuguese have set for you. And yet, your adventure has not ended as you will travel to the land of poets, the Emerald Isle. You will see why Johnny Cash sang about Ireland's 40 shades of green. More than a tour, an experience worthy of any bucket list. Check out your itinerary on Facebook, Culinary Tour with Jerry Quinn, or go to ChristianExpedition.com. A five-star experience at a three-star price. On the battlefield, there's a saying America's military men and women live by. Never leave a fallen warrior behind, ever. Off the battlefield, Wounded Warrior Project operates with the same goal. Wounded Warrior Project was created to help our men and women returning home with the scars of war, whether those scars are physical or mental. Wounded Warrior Project, we never leave a fallen warrior behind, ever. Learn more about what we do at WoundedWarriorProject.org. Welcome back to the Nick Fellows with you with our final segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight we're talking to uh, Julian Zelizer. He is the author of Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. And as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, the first history book. I, I remember everything in it, uh, to some degree anyway. Uh, Julian, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, great, great book, great story, a, a great way to, for those of us who are old enough to remember 1974 and what was going on, um, a great way to review our lives as to uh, how it all went and all that went on. It's a, it's a great uh, anthology of problems. Uh, and since 74, you've been mentioning that we've just been drawing further apart to get to the point now where we are highly separated and uh, very 
divided. Uh, how, how do you view that as far as is this part, are we halfway through division here or are we at the, the apex of division and we might be getting back together? Well, how do you see this trend as a historian? I don't think we're at the apex of it. Uh, part of the story we're trying to tell is, is really how we remake many of our institutions post-Watergate, post the trauma of the 1960s, and we remake them in ways that tend to favor division. So whether you're talking about political processes where the benefit uh, is to the politician who plays to the extreme elements of their party, or whether you're talking about a media ecosystem that is structured around giving everyone access to the public commons uh, and where editorial control has really diminished since the age of someone like Walter Cronkite, uh, it's not going to be easy to get out of where we are. We're going to keep remaking and operating in this world. You could just look at the impact that the development of social media had in the early 2000s uh, on the dissemination of information. We already had cable television by that point. We already had the Internet. But it really kind of explodes in the early 2000s uh, where this becomes a central means of information production, whether you're talking about Facebook, uh, which came on uh, in 2004, Twitter, or other, other kinds of mechanisms like this. Everyone could be a journalist. Everyone could have an opinion, and it could go viral, as we say, all over the world. So uh, when thinking about where we go from here, if we're serious about trying to envision a world where there are more points of commonality than only difference, I think we need to really think through how to reform different parts of our country, different institutions, so that there'll be more incentives to uh, you know, find areas where we agree rather than disagree. And that could be as uh, specific as changing the way that gerrymandering is done in the state to commission nonpartisan-based work uh, to what happens in the boardroom of news networks um, and online news sites as they think about what kind of news and information they want to offer the public. It will take that serious kind of soul-searching, I think, to get out of where we've been for four-plus decades. Yes, well, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, uh, with the political parties, the uh, extremes of the political parties, they all seem to be focusing on their base, whatever their base is. But the base, no matter how you're going to define it, is still going to be a very small percentage of the total population. Yet it, it seems like the, the massive uh, inertia of both parties seem to be moving to preserve their bases. Uh, are we ever going to be able to get away from that, do you think? Or is it going to continue to be... Bases are going to be the, the hallmark and will be the, uh, the goal to protect those bases throughout the, the next couple of years. I think in the short term that's not going to change, uh, but it is possible to change that. I certainly think in the politics of campaigns for the House of Representatives, it is possible for states to draw districts that will be more competitive, where the districts won't be solidly red or blue. And, and when a member thinks about what kinds of issues should I talk about or what kinds of positions I should take, they will be more inclined to find the areas of gray if their electorate is more uh, heterogeneous 
that way. Uh, but but that really has to change from the you know bottom up in terms of the electorate. And uh, you could also imagine uh, with the political parties if campaign finance worked differently. I mean, one of the phenomena we write about is is how campaign finance changes, and you have the growing prevalence of, of private money in elections, and and some of the major forces who fill that space are single issue groups who give a lot of money and they make sure that politicians don't diverge from the interest groups party line if you reform that if you switch to a system for example with more small donations uh you could imagine some of that breaking apart uh so it's not inevitable will always be that way you could also see the sorting of voters uh, which we had in the 70s and 80s, so it's, it, voters aren't sorting so much along partisan ideology. But again, it's nothing that's going to change in the next two or three years. We're really talking about uh, really probably a decade-long project of reform to get the parties into a different place. You know, with uh, t- going back to technology for a bit, um, where do we go to get the true facts, uh, not not the filtered or the editorial? facts uh, when when we have to go out and look at the 24-7 media outlets, uh, both on the Internet and, and on cable. Is there a place? I don't think there is a place, and, and that is hard. And I think re- really there's a lot of obligation now on the part of the reader or viewer, uh, not simply to sort out and, and to find where can I find the news that – is, is most grounded in actual data and good reporting as opposed to partisan opinion. Um, but it, it also will require people to look around a lot, and that's asking a lot, meaning uh, to do searching. Not There isn't just one source. I think you really need to look at a variety of different kinds of sources within particular networks or sites. You have to find who can I trust. Everyone is not equal. Uh, on these news outlets. But right now we're at a moment where, again, going back to the 60s, I think it was pretty easy for many Americans to know where do I turn to find out basically what's happening. I might have a different opinion than my friend or neighbor, but I can at least turn on CBS Evening News or read some of the papers like the New York Times. And no, that's the basic story. Whereas I don't think anyone has that confidence right now in a lot of the news outlets uh, and so it takes – I don't have a good answer other than it just takes a lot of work uh, on, on the part, and that's probably going to lead some people just to tune out, uh, which is a tragic development, I think, in a democratic system. Well, that, that, that's very true. Uh, but then on the other hand, I see more people than ever being engaged in uh, the political debates, no matter what side they're on uh, or if they're in the great – middle, uh, acting as spectators and commentators uh, among their groups, uh, I haven't seen that before, especially uh, during the Trump administration, which is extraordinary in many, many ways. The, uh, the thought of, uh, you know, what, what do people expect to happen? And like looking at your book, you go up from 2000 or from uh, 1974 through 2018, uh, we're all like waiting for the next chapters to be written, and it's almost like with every news cycle, we have some other breaking news story that uh, adds to the story. And uh, how is the story going to end? Uh, any any predictions on that? 
I don't know how the story ends, to be honest. And and the great thing about being a historian is is we're trained at looking at what happened, not what's going to happen. Um, I, I do think, let me pick up on something you said, which is, I believe, true, that in all the uh, tumultuous uh, news we're going through now and events, which I think worry many people, rationally so, we're, we're we're talking as the government is shut down and, and we don't know when it's going to reopen or large parts of it. Um, it has led to incredible interest and engagement in politics. I have never, as a professor, been at a point where so many people want to know about uh, how does voting work or how do our political processes let this happen? How does the What kind of power does the president actually have and why can he invoke powers that he doesn't seem to have? These kinds of questions are uh, front and center for many people. And uh, I think it's been pretty remarkable. There's the interest in our book, has, we're fortunate that it stems from that. People want to know Why exactly sure. what you're saying. Where did have this happen? No, no, I, I think the, the answer is, yeah. Yeah, we only have a couple seconds left, but I, I think the book not only is great for a college class, but also for book clubs because there is such a general interest but uh, the name of the book is called Fault Lines, uh, a history of the United States since 1974 that we can all relate to at least half of it. And uh, we've, been, we've been speaking with Julian uh, Zelizer. So, Julian, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thank you so very much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind for company Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.